My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Nick Gibson from High Point Church. We are doing part five, I think, of biblical anthropology. This is the final part. It's not going to be as long as the other ones. It's about 20 minutes, about 20, 25 minutes is what we're going to be planning on doing. And we'll see if we actually make it, if we actually do that. But the whole purpose of this one is kind of wrap up all that we've talked about in this biblical anthropology series and kind of give people practical ways in which they can, they can, um, they can kind of play out some of the things that we've talked about. And so the the question to this podcast is how is your image bound to your sanctification? And that's an important question because if you know who you are and what your image is in Christ, then you have to figure out what to do to grow in that. And that's kind of where we're at. And so this is, this is what we're going to talk about and to wrap all this up. Yeah. Uh, shameless self plug. I wrote a book on this called substance becoming Oaks of righteousness in a world of vapor a few years ago. And this, that has my more complete answer to this question, but. And there, it's a, I mean, it's a thick, I mean, there's how many chapters, like 10, 12. Yeah. It's, a, it's an average size book. Yeah. It's not know. like thick, but there's um, like a lot of things covered in it. Yeah. Yeah. I worked really hard to make it understandable and yeah. <laughs> make it complete as well. So it's, it's essentially sanctification in relationship to worldliness in particular, but yeah. Yeah. So that's the goal of this one. And so I guess we'll just get started with the, I guess, yeah, you can kind of break down the relationship between image and sanctification and yeah, why so, that's important. So when we say like uh, having studied the image of God a little bit more, having a, what we call a biblical anthropology. Um, so how do we think about this in terms of like growing in grace? You know, and one is to say, well, once you know you're made in the image of God, that should tell you where you're headed better. Maybe not perfectly. And so one way I have coined for this is whether we're pursuing transfiguration or transhumanism. So transhumanism is part of expressive individualism that is like, I want to actually transcend my humanity and become something better than human. Um, as opposed to becoming human so much better that I could be transfigured into the image of Christ. I could be glorified. And the Christian takes the view of transfiguration. We want to ultimately be transfigured like Jesus was, except in the, in the end being glorified and raised with new bodies and, and really lo- being like Christ as full, fully and totally human while being fully ourselves. The transhumanist wants so much to express whatever's inside of them that holding to a divinely created idea of what a human being is, is not important. It's about me expressing whatever I want to be. And so um, that will include like, you know, technologies in our bodies that can make us something else. Being able to change our sex would be a version of that. I think the, the whole movement of like furries and stuff like that would be that kind of thing. Like I, I can just be a cat if I want to be a cat. I can transcend. I, I don't, I'm not forced to be anything by the nature of my being. Elon Musk talking about like how he, he's saying that we're going to get cl- we're closer to having a chip that we can implant into it. That is us that we can. He talked about. I saw that the other day that we'll be able to implant into whatever we want to be. And that's some. That's like exactly what you're kind of talking about. I mean, that's like, yeah, yeah, it is. And so and it can still be done now in some ways, not that specific yeah. way of doing and, it. And we've seen, I mean, transhumanism has been a theme of shows like Black Mirror and others where it's kind of like, well, what's going to happen when technology gets us further than this to where what we are as embodied human beings in these physical bodies becomes, quote, less relevant yeah. to how we want to be. And it's, it's, it feels almost like you're a Luddite if you say, I'm actually not looking for that. 
I'm looking for technologies that make life better, but I'm, but I have an idea of what a human being is meant to be. Right. Um, and that's what I'm trying to be. I think that's really important because embracing our embodiedness is fundamentally a human being. Because we are and wishing we could transcend it into transhumanism is I, th- I think inherently ungodly. It's in, it's ungodly, but it's also not like, it's not a new concept. It's been happening for a long time. I mean, you could look back to like the, the tower of Babel in some ways of, of trying to tra- transcend, Right. Would that be an example of like in trying to reach that, the heavens in and, the sense and, that they wanted to transcend what God had put them on earth to do and, and what, who, who they were put on earth to be? Yes. So how did, where do you start then once you understand, you know, I'm an embodied human being and we've talked about that in this podcast series, where do you, where do you start then in trying to grow into who God wants you to be? And I know the answer is godliness, but where does somebody yeah. start? Yeah. Well, okay. So there's a couple ways. One is to, begin to understand a biblical definition of love because our teleology or what quote perfection is the real goal of where we're supposed to aiming for is love. But the thing is, is that all of the Bible puts together this like many like layered woven idea of what love is. And it's extremely different than that of expressive individuals, which is whatever I want to do, you should affirm in me and you should do whatever is necessary to make possible for me to be whatever I want. Five or six years ago, that would have meant positively for you to be emboldened to express yourself. Now we've added to that your that you shouldn't have to face your traumas or pain or hurts and you should be able to be whatever you want to be. So if you're, if you're being something, expressing yourself in a way out of a hurt, we should accept that expression rather than say, you can't express yourself that way. We actually have to deal with your hurt. Does that make sense? So in Christian faith, because there's a teleology, it both limits our expression to love and it also forces us to face our healing so that we can be people of love. And this, the, the, I think, I think that's the love thing is an important thing, obviously, for a bunch of different reasons. But I think one of the biggest reasons that it's important is that love, like love is two completely different things. Like in Christian, my throat's doing something weird, but in Christianity, love is one thing outside of Christianity. It's a completely different thing. And if you don't figure that out in your transition from non-Christian to Christian, you're going to get like, I mean, I would question, I mean, my, I would question if you're even a Christian because you, you, to some capacity, you have to understand what that is to become a Christian and what true love is. And so how is one person, how is someone to understand what is love and how do they interact with love? And then how do they interact? How do they love other people? Yeah. So, so the scripture teaches, uh, I think we had Michael Matheson Miller on a while back and he said that God's commandments are ordered to reason. So like if we could understand why God says what he says, it would be reasonable. Right. And so part of the whole logic of that is, is that God has called us. So a lot of the dictates of justice of of love are dictates of justice, right? You you should treat other person as they ought to be treated. That's loving. You should also treat people in relationship to their teleology or their purpose, right? That's why we've been talking about um, human anthropology. Like, what are we spiritually as creatures? Because we're supposed to treat people as what they are. That's what Jesus says, like, treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated. If you don't know how you want to be treated, then you're not going to be able to treat your neighbor that well. And if you don't know who you are, you don't know how to treat yourself. Yeah, the golden rule is like a a no BS shortcut 
to natural revelation. But it's to, weird too. I mean, but it's, that's why you, the golden rule can be found in like Buddhism and stuff like that yeah, too. But it's it because also, it's obvious. But it can also like cause destruction because if I, like you say, if my way of treating myself is I have pain and I want to express that in the ways that are not dealing with my actual pain, then I should treat other people that way. But that's not beneficial to me or the other person. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, but this is why I would say the golden rule is a minimal no BS rule because even if your view of humanity is really screwed up, you still on some basic functioning level know how you wish somebody would treat you. And so even if like you can like, um, you can like come up with some kind of way to excuse your gossip. When somebody actually gossips about you and you feel the pain of it, you go, I wish that person didn't do that. Okay. Well, great. Don't do that with other people. You know, so that, that way, even like outside of Christian, you don't even need Christianity to know that the golden rule is calling BS on you all the time. Right. And then when people treat you the way you don't want to be treated, the golden rule works in the opposite too, because you're like, wait, I don't want them to treat me like that. And then you're like, oh wait, that means I can't treat them like that. And so all the golden rule is, is the rejection of personal hypocrisy. It's not, so we call it the golden rule because like it's so it works really well, but you it still, works really well practically. But I think it w- stops working well when you start asking the question why. So if I have if I you know I'm like five years old and I and I hit you and you're five years old in a different reality, I hit you and the teacher says don't hit Nick, and I say why. That's a whole different question because practically it works. And that's this is where I got screwed up as a kid, I think, because I would ask the question why. And there wasn't really any solid answers. Well, that's because he's a person. It's like, who cares? Like, so am I. And I want to hit him. So why can't I do that? And so, yeah, that's not what your strength is for. Your strength is ordered to goodness. Yeah. And that would have been helpful. At five. I maybe wouldn't have gotten into so many fights, but yeah. Yeah. You were given strength to protect against evil, not create evil. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. So, so that's, that's why teleology is so important. You have to know what you're for or you can't order your life towards it. That's why Paul says his greatest desire for all the people he's led to Christ is to someday present them quote, perfect in Christ. Telios and Christu, like, like that there's a completeness, a fullness, a maturity in your development in Christ. Um, in Philippians, he says, everything I do, I do for your joy and progress, right? I want you to be, have joy in God. You're not supposed to be miserable in this whole process. You're supposed to find joy in it as you grow and develop, right? But also you're supposed to grow and develop. Yeah towards this end, the telios, the telos, right? The end. So the I t- think telos, that's our, te- that's our telios. Teleology, teleology is the study of the telos. And the, the, telos, the end or the good. What does that mean? And telos in Greek means mature, complete, or as it was supposed to be. Okay. So like some sort of perfection. Yeah. But perfection, not like Greek perfection is the, the greatest of all possible blanks. Like, so the, a perfect woman in the Greek sense is the greatest woman that you could possibly imagine in every possible way. The Hebrew version of that is a woman that is ordered to humanity. So she's only got two boobs, right? She has hair. She can have a child uh, unless something bad happens to her. Like a natural. Yeah. But she she has a birthmark on her forehead. Yeah. She's still perfect. Right. She has a little bit of Because it's not a defect that's going to like right, take a, away her ability to, to be right, a human being. If you look, at, and if do, you look at 500 apples, right. But they're all perfectly edible. Right. They're all perfect from that, from that biblical sense. Right. And the difference, the, the difference what we have in the world is, is that people mit, trade one for the other. Yes. Yeah. Right? yeah so yeah. like. Is that the fallacy of equivocation? Is that a situation where that would. It, it is a version of that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, 
I think we've got to realize like, so, so, so if you people here, well, Nick says that we're all supposed to be perfect because, because Jesus said, be perfect. Like my heavenly father is perfect, but perfect does not mean in the Greek sense. It means in the Hebrew sense, what perfection is for you to be the human being you were created in the first place. Yeah. So no, what Jesus meant was God created you to be a human being. And perfect means you becoming the human being you were always meant to be. Because that was always confusing because you said be perfect as, as your father in heaven is perfect. And then when, and I know perfect and good aren't the same thing, but then when the rich young ruler said good, good teacher and Jesus said, why do you call me, me good? good? No Nobody's one is good, good but God. God. It mm-hmm. seems like that, that good and perfect are different, but it's also like if you're good, you're probably perfect. And if you're perfect, you're good in some way. So that was interesting to me because it was like, Jesus is like, you got to be perfect. But then he's like, well, I'm not good. But God is. And that's weird because he is, I think God, Jesus is good. So did he lie? I mean, that's a whole different podcast yeah. probably. I mean, this gets back to the idea that if somebody is telling the truth, they will contradict themselves many times because you're not saying the same thing. Like what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler is in context to that conversation, what the rich young ruler was getting at, what Jesus was getting at. And, Je- and Jesus was trying to get at the rich young ruler that he's not good. Right. Because he came into the converse- conversation with a little bit of arrogance behind I'd never. Right. And I who was- does he actually think Jesus is? If he just thinks Jesus is some rabbi, then he should know better than to call him good. If he knows that Jesus is the son of God, then he's not just a teacher. So which is it? There is no such thing as a good teacher. There is the good son of God. And you don't think and that, there's a bad teacher. <laughs> you don't think that the, the rich young ruler was trying to make uh, equate himself and put himself on the same level as I Christ. I think he was flattering Jesus. By trying to be like, I've never broken any of the commands since I was a little boy. Yeah. So I'm kind of perfect now. I'm plenty good. I'm right? good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that Jesus, I think that the, the rich young ruler was trying to flatter Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus knocked him down from that. And Jesus did what you're not supposed to do when people flatter you, which is give them the what for and tell them that their premise is false. And put the person on defense. You're like Jesus, just like take a compliment, but he didn't want to do that. Right. And he was intentionally emotionally screwing with this guy because the guy needed to be messed with. He needed to shake his world up. And so one of the ways to do it is he's just flattering the guy. And all of a sudden Jesus goes crossways with him. And then you find out that he's not even going to follow Jesus and he's just going to walk away. And you're like, this dude's not even that good. Like like you would have thought that. Who knows what happens in the end? We know he goes away sad. Right. But maybe he changes. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, the, the point is, is that for our sanctification, we need to know what we're meant to be. And that's all through the Bible. You just got to read the whole Bible. I mean, you have to learn Christianity and you have to look at Jesus, the personal example of what it means to be godly. Look at the apostles, especially after they're filled with the spirit and are operating in like in the gospels, the apostles are often, often showing us bad behavior. But if you just read the gospels carefully, you know, when the apostles are doing what's good and when, when they're doing what's bad relative to imitation. Yeah. And then you read all the epistles are there to just tell you what love is and isn't in a hundred different ways relative to God and relative to man. Yeah. It gets more complicated as it goes on. Like in the, in the epistles, it gets complicated because people are more complicated. Like you can, you can read the gospels and you can practically figure out what's good and not good. But then when you really start to dig deep into these things, it gets more complicated. Like what we talked about, like in a, in a podcast that we're either going to probably release after this one about social media, should Christians use it? It's like, that's a much more complex answer than just yes or no, mm-hmm. but it can be no and it can be yes. And and that it gets more complicated. And that's why the apostles had to do that, had yeah. to break those down in the epistles. Yeah. Okay. So then going from being clear on the image of God in our teleology, then the question is, okay, we're embodied persons. How do embodied persons become something? Like how do we become, go from, thing A to thing B, right? And the answer is, is that we're developmental creatures and we develop by engaging in experiences in certain kinds of ways, right? So we can't just upload and update and be what we want to be. 
we can't just decide one day we want to be something and that we just are that thing. We have to, we go through the processes of repetition, struggle, relationship, like all that kind of stuff. Um, one philosopher I like, uh, University of Niagara, Phil, I can't think of his last name right now. He said, the interesting thing about human free will is in the moment, we really don't have free will like we would like to imagine it. We're going to be whatever we already are. Yeah. If what we really want, if we want free will over who we are, we have to start back down upstream of it and say, who do I want to be? And then you have to say, okay, what sort of things, relationships, actions, time use, but that locks you into a another version of non-free will because you're 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 deciding who you're going to be and then you're going into that which which at at the end of that trail at the end of that like you, journey like leads you to a place where you're not going to make a different decision other than the one that you have you've premeditated yeah correct yeah but like that's the thing like if you if free will is like when we have decisions it's a toss up nobody's ever had free will and nor nor will anybody ever have free will right what we choose is dictated by who we are. That's what's free. And so what I am free to do is to shape myself in whatever way I deem best. Right. And so what God, God tells me how to shape myself and in what direction to shape myself. And then I have, and that's why faith is everything. Do I believe and choose to do so or don't I? That's why all of salvation comes down to faith. So when we're talking about being an embodied person and, and how your image relates to sanctification and it's bound to sanctification, then what are some practical ways I don't know if you have like a list of like three to five ways or things that people can be like, here's some practices that I need to do to become that sanctified, perfect person, complete person. Yeah. So I think there's one more step before we get there, which is like, what am I trying to shape in myself first? Like reverse engineering. Okay. What kind of person am I be? Okay. So wisdom is highly valued in scripture, right? I want to be disciplined over my sensuality and improvident emotions. Um, I want to be able to have wholesome enjoyment. I'm supposed to enjoy creation in my life and enjoy others in love. Um, I want to be capable of love and all the strengths necessary to do it. Um, I want to have the right kind of human introversion and extroversion. I want to be in my head in the right kind of ways and out of my head in the world with other people in the right kind of ways, right? Um, Rather than neurotically in my head, and then not with the people I'm actually with, right? I want to learn how to um, both love and be interdependent with others and have true personal responsibility as an individual person myself and so on, right? Once I understand what those are, then I'm like, okay, what practices, what context, whatever do I need to get there? I think what will surprise some Christians, especially if they're more evangelical or Catholic, I think too, is probably the biggest, um, the biggest dynamic of that in the New Testament is all the things that make up what you might call church membership. Cause like a lot of evangelicals are reared on the idea of like a quiet time, read the Bible and pray and journal. Or if you're a Roman Catholic, it's the liturgy. You go and you take the liturgy and the sacraments. I don't think either of those are actually right in the first, both those are great and those are good disciplines and they, and I'll get to those in a second. But the first one, if you read through the new Testament epistles, what you will find is Christians coming together to learn about Christ together to share Christ together, to take this, those ordinances of baptism and, and communion, the Lord's supper together in fellowship with one another, living lives together, sharing their goods with one another as they have needed. So on that there's like this beloved community, this like fabric of people being friends and brothers and sisters with each other. That is engaging within being part of the family of God as brothers and sisters in Christ and living together in that way. Yeah. And in that context, applying what Jesus told us to do. 
So confronting one another when necessary, forgiving people when they sin against us, giving generously towards people sacrificially for ourselves, getting up in the middle of the night to go watch somebody's kid because they need our help, doing those things that make up a true and functioning and loving family. Being honest with, you, with right. each other. And, and the big thing that like Jill Reese, Reese, who's been on this podcast before is trying to do is like, everybody thinks that, you know, well, she, I mean, with her company Oaks is building those relationships where you don't need to necessarily go get like a therapist. You can just like do that with other Christians. You know what I mean? Like, like the the way that the church probably should have been in the first place where I don't need to go get a therapist to have a friend to talk to. Like I should be able to go to the church and, yeah, so the idea, the idea Jill, Jill and I've been working on for like five years is not so much to replace Christian therapy because I think sometimes it can be really helpful. Yeah, yeah, but just, but to, to realize like how is the therapist completely unable to evoke sanctification in the client? And the answer is because you're only with them for 50 minutes a week. Yeah. And that's the maximum. And you're just in a room talking to each other. And their investment into you is relative to your investment into them financially. Right. And so yeah. like, there's, there's a girl I, I counseled with a while back who somebody needed to hold her while she sobbed for a couple of hours at a time, a bunch of times. And I couldn't do that as a man. I just couldn't offer that to her. She couldn't get that. You don't get that from a therapist. A therapist yeah. <laughs> does not hold you. Right. Like physically, you're talking physically. physically so you can smell you. their pheromones and fear the, feel their arms around you, holding you in like a child. Um, and, but somebody like Jill Reese can do that. Yeah. You can come to her house. You can break out into tears while you're folding laundry, while she's listening to you talk after you've been to your therapist and she can sit up on the love seat with you and hold you until you're done crying. And, that is necessary for human healing. That's part of being part of the family of God and the body of Christ. And it's what people really need. And therapists can't offer that. And it's not because therapists are bad. It's because counseling is a certain kind of thing. And because we think people are, because, you know, Freud taught us to believe that people were sort of like mental puzzles we could figure out. We created this thing called therapy where that's what we do. We and then we so, morph yeah. that into the place where you go to receive medicine now. Right. And, and that's a way oversimplification, obviously. Right. There's all kinds of therapists and Christian therapists trying to figure out what do we do with this hour? That's the most beneficial. One of the great things about Christian, there's a, the center, center for Christian counseling in Madison that has like a ton of good th- Christian therapists that are doing really, really good things. Like, like Christian counseling is not bad. Like there's a number of Christian counselors in Madison. I, they are, they have some good folks, I think. Um, Obviously, uh, like Sue at Samaritan, there's a bunch of people like that. And there's some people in our church studying in that process right now. My wife is one of them, right? And Jill, obviously one of them. You know, but Justin Banger. I do know Justin. I yeah. think he's good. Yeah, I think he he's good. He did our whole too. family. Yeah, oh, yeah. He's, yeah, for a yeah. long time. Yeah, my, he like saved my parents' marriage and that kind oh, of stuff. Yeah, so he did it. Yeah, so... Um, uh, so I think but what I'm what we're saying here, thanks to sanctification-wise, is being part of the family of God in this integrated, like living life together kind of way is the most fundamental spiritual discipline I know of. And then in that context, of course, worshiping God. Yeah. Right. I think a lot of people want me to say, read the Bible, but, but remember like the new Testament Christians couldn't do that. Yeah. Have more than half of them were illiterate probably. Cause like the, the church was almost 60% slaves in yeah. certain places. And lots women of women, who lots of women who were yeah. not educated. And, and, and more than that, remember to have a Bible in those days, you had to get vellum, which was, well, papyrus which was even more expensive which is like woven plants and then you had to write on it you had to write out every single thing you were going to keep there was no printing press nothing typed so books were incredibly expensive and incredibly rare so most churches had nothing maybe maybe they had like 
half of the book of Romans or like, like nothing or the letter to the Philippians. Yeah. There was the no distributed such thing as a Bible yet. from the apostles. Yeah. Right. They, right. They hadn't developed lectionaries yet where like, where they put them together and then a bishop would like carry them around to the churches. And so the Think Bible wasn't part of church. Trustful that was for like the apostles. Cause they, they've got all this information in their head that they're writing these notes out and they're like, there's, they're going to get like half of one of these notes and they're going to like probably follow it really poorly. And they're, yeah, that would have been so stressful. In the, yeah. In the early church, you were dependent on visits from the apostles or their emissaries. You would have um, fragments of, or some of the letters of the new Testament. Because that's just how what you had because it was so expensive and hard to get. And you'd you hadn't an even elder, heard of Romans yet. An elder board, probably that would right, try have, to hold down the situation. Right. Yeah. yeah, whoever was like the, the seemed like the most godly, godly person group of people. Yeah, right, would be appointed could, by the apostles, yeah. and that was it. They were the pastors. Um, by the time you got to the second century and so on, you started getting like local leaders that they called bishops. Right. You also got lectionaries where people would put not the New Testament together, but readings from the New Testament that were like really important and famous, and they would create a book of them. And you're like, why would they do that? Why not just copy out the whole New Testament? Because you had to copy everything yeah. out. So you and can create that's a, more money. To, you have to, it's way it's more expensive, yeah. more difficult, right? And every time the Romans could, they were killing people, taking the scriptures and burning them. One of the reasons there's almost no manuscripts from the first 300 years of Christian church is not because we didn't want to preserve them, but because people were beaten to death to find out where they were and then they were burned. Like, it's not like in, in the Muslim empires where they took all of the copies of the Quran that disagreed with the official version and burned them because they didn't want them to exist. No, the Romans, like, victimized us, beat our people to death and took our documents and burned them f- f- against our will. Right. We weren't burning our own stuff. Yeah. Well, with the exception that it was generally thought of in the ancient world that when a, a meaningful document was tattered, kind of like with American flags, like when we have a flag that's like, does service they copy they make a new flag and then they burn the old one it was thought that like when you got a document where you really couldn't read it anymore or whatever that you would retire it by burning it and so there were some documents burnt for that kind of reason because they were old and hard to read and oh after times that the ink would crack and so on um but it wasn't to get rid of readings we didn't want to exist so um, so anyway, so therefore Christian life was being together. That's all it was. You came together. There were no instruments. There were no drums. There were no, there was no air conditioned buildings, slaves and women, a few men, whoever came to Jesus would come together in a place. And basically they would sing a couple of hymns without music. They would, somebody might share something. They would all go through a creed of moral deeds that they had rejected in the name of Jesus. They would not commit adultery. They would not steal. They would not tell lies. And everybody would say, I, yes, because I'm a Christian, I will not tell lies. I will not steal. I will not commit adultery. Right. And then they would have the Lord's supper. Right. And they might eat together. And that was, that was what it meant to be a Christian, to come together for, for Christian worship and discipleship. Does that make sense? And then when an apostle would come to town, they'd come and they'd meet the whole night. Like they, it's, it's what they do in China today. Yeah. Right. You'd show up at like 5 p.m. after work. Right. Or 6 or 7 p.m. after work. And you'd listen like there's a place where Paul preaches all night at a place. And this guy like falls off the balcony because he falls asleep as it says, as Paul talked, quote, on and on. Right. And then Paul raises him from the dead. But he's he's in this place and he teaches all night because he's going to leave tomorrow. And that's how it was. So I think when you realize that you realize, hey, there's a lot of ways to develop as a Christian. But the most fundamental is to be integrally part of a Christian church, treating each other as brothers and sisters. When you put all that together, what we call that is church membership. What What is the, I mean, I, I'm trying to think about like, which I know there's like 22 year olds thinking that that's the most preposterous thing they've ever heard. Church membership. So Nick is saying church membership is the fundamental Christian discipline. My answer is yes. 
Yes. Are you talking about me, the church membership thing? No, I'm saying no. That's oh. what I'm telling the audience. Like, I'm, I'm not saying no. Like, if you put together loving one another, submitting to the discipline you, of the elders, that, let me you put all that stuff together, and that's what church discipline. Clarify church membership. Like, you don't mean like church membership and like at High Point, I become a member of the Church of High Point. It's being um, in the Church of High Point, like coming to the church, engaging in the in the in the community, being a part of a small group. Because I don't, I'm not, I'm a, not a member at High Point. Nor will I ever be a member because I don't believe in that type of membership. And that's a different podcast. But yeah, but one of the things, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm, one of the things I'm, I'm saying in this podcast is if you take all the stuff in the New Testament that it means to really be part of a local church, it would be something like what we call church membership or be, and church membership formally is the closest thing that exists in our community to this original spiritual discipline that is at the heart of faith. Investing into the local church. <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah. Existing as a family member in the local church, yes. right? Yeah, which yeah, would yeah. include things like submitting to church discipline, treating people right. as brothers and sisters. Which, and so for on. the record, I've done that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and it's not like I've been outside of that stuff, and that's not the reason why I don't want to do church membership. Like, I'm, I'm all for that personally. But yeah, if you do everything that is part of New Testament church membership, and you're not a formalized church member, I don't think I can prove that you're wrong. I don't think rejecting formalized church membership makes much sense either, but we can talk about that another yeah, time. Yeah, we should. Because so, okay. So that's one of the biggest ones. And I think that, especially like, as I talk to like maybe younger people, they would be like, well, I, you know, I connect with God on walks and I read my Bible and I watch sermons on YouTube. And what I'm saying is none of that is the fundamental Christian spiritual discipline. The fundamental Christian spiritual discipline is church membership. It is being a brother and sister in the, in the physical local body of Christ as a member of, and like you are part of a family as a brother and sister that you cannot be separated from. And then now in the 21st century, we have the perks um, attached to that of being able to have a Bible of our own. We yeah, get since it. 1525, yeah. right? Or whatever, yeah. you, we can now have a written Bible yeah. printed cheaply. Right. And and because we're in, we live in a literate culture, we have absolutely no excuse but to avail ourselves of reading God's yeah, word. Yeah, that's that, that was the thing I was going to talk about is is sanctification relative to your situation? Because I I've thought about that a lot. It's like, does God? Yes, I think in His grace. Think so, yeah. You think so? You think like in His Absolutely, grace? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I think like I mean, in the second century, God would have never faulted anybody for not reading the Bible. But if the Bible is the word of God written, and you can buy one for ten bucks and have it and read it, and that in your literate and you don't, like in God's name, like do you really think you believe in? Jesus? Like, how could you believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? And to know that his closest followers have truly testified to his life and what he is and what he was like. And that you say that you follow this Christ and you not read of him. You don't even want to hear about what he has to say. I yeah. mean, I just can't even like now. Now I have sympathy for people who don't do it because I have my days where I don't do it. And I know what that's like as a human being to have other concerns on your mind. Radically don't do it. I was one who didn't read my Bible like ever. And I don't know why, but now I do as just like what I do every night before I go to bed. Yeah. And I have little sympathy for people. Like you can miss a couple nights or whatever. And okay, that's so what I would say is like, let's say you're listening to this and you're like 28 years old and you're a Christian. You don't read the Bible at all. Right. I would say, okay, listen, start with finding that ridiculous. Don't start with reading the Bible. Start with the idea that you live in a literate culture. You can read the word of God written is written in your language. Your language is the most fortunate of any language in the history of the world in biblical translation. The Bible's text has never been more certain or clear than it is now because of the science, the global science of textual criticism. You have the word of God written in your hand, translated wonderfully, and you don't read it. And you belong to Jesus the Christ. 
Think about that and start with saying, this is great. This is, you don't have to feel bad. Just see the irony, the foolishness, the strangeness of it, right? And go, that's weird. And then do as you will. And you'll have a lot of people, what I've experienced my age, who will say, you know, I don't really read my Bible, but I pray a lot. And it's like, that's like me saying like, you know, I don't have any ingredients, but I I cook a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Like I talk to Nick, but I like won't listen to anything that he says. Like I'll tell in these podcasts, if I just like took out your voice and that would, people would get annoyed with that because they maybe not, maybe they like to hear me talk more, but they they would get annoyed and they'd be like, what is the purpose of this? Cause you're not listening back for anything. You know, one thing some younger men might be able to understand, especially if they're married is like when you like want to have sex with your wife all the time and, but you don't want to just sit and listen to her. And she gets kind of pissed. She's like, look, I'm not a, I'm not a sex monkey. Like I'm a human being and I want to be loved whole, you know? So anyway, so, so, um, so anyway, church membership, I say is the first discipline then relative to where we are right now as a culture and people. Yeah. Reading the Bible. But then also doing that together, read the Bible with other people, read it with wise people, talk it over. Right. And then the concept of discipleship in the Bible that, that trustworthy people hand off the faith to trustworthy people. I'd say intergenerational mentoring is one of the like premier important discipleship tools that we have at our hands. If you despise people older than you, you're immature. Now there may be particular people older than you that are worth despising because they act foolishly or selfishly or whatever, but they're, but longing for relationships. In fact, the the Bible says that when the Holy spirit comes in the new age of the church, one of the things that it'll do is it'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children, children to their fathers, that there's an intergenerational mutual respect that will increase, not decrease because of it. Right. And then I think going to it, being part of the family of God with people who are different from you. Real quick before you move on the, and vice versa. Older people shouldn't despise younger people. That's a sign of maturity, immaturity too, I think. Yeah. There's a, there is a, there is a bad maturing. There's like a rotting that yeah, older people yeah, do. They yeah, begin yeah. to rot and a bitter, go bad. Bitter, bitterness. Mm-hmm. And it's embittered and like yeah. nothing the young people can do pleases you. And yeah. Yeah. And that's just as common yeah. as foolish youth. Yeah. So, and then I would say, I, I would say like, then start looking at like how, how to set up rhythms in your life where you're really in a disciplined way doing these things either together with other people or yourself. So which days are you going to read the Bible and when, like when, when, when are you have good attention? When do you have bad attention? Right. Like, or are you, are you going to decide to go to church every week? Right. That not going to church is going to have like a it's going to be a major exception. And like my daughter right now, she just decided she was going to read a book of the Bible every week and meet with her friends an hour, an hour and a half before church at a restaurant. Right. That was going to be one of her spiritual differences that keeps her reading the Bible. She's preparing for an actual meeting with friends, meeting with the she, friends about what they read. Yeah. And they talk about what they read, even if it's like a minor prophet that they don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Right? No, that's good. Yeah. yeah. And so like coming up with like weekly, daily, monthly, annually, but, but the main rhythm in the Bible, remember is a weekly rhythm. That is the fundamental rhythm in the Bible. Then probably daily, then probably annually. Mm-hmm. And so I think like annually, one of the things to do is like having really good celebrations of Christian holidays with your friends. Like if you're a single person, put on a like Christmas feast at your apartment if you can, or at somebody's house and everybody cook like some of the best they can and come together and like find a way to create rituals that cause you to really take joy in Christmas and the coming of Jesus, the Christ Easter is another great example. Doing a Passover feast or something like that is great. But like, I think holidays and celebrations is a good annual thing to look at. Right. Cause we, we're, we suck at this. I mean, Americans because of consumerism, we have lost 
um, seasonal enjoyment because we just please ourselves every minute. And so there's nothing to look forward to. We're constantly like neurologically spent. The idea that you'd be like, Christmas is coming. I mean, for, for me, I mean, honestly at 44, like Christmas is kind of a bore because of how like commercialized it is and how it's like, it's just like one thing after another. And it's like, uh, there's, there's no anticipation. And you can get to the point. I feel like in your life, I mean, where you can like buy the things that you want, really, they're not like super expensive. So you're not looking forward to these gifts. And then it's just like, and you have no good rituals. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. we're just going to watch football and then we're going to, it's like, I've seen this eat. game 50,000 times. Like I know who wins and it's just like, somebody's going to get, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it gets boring. Thanks. All these things get extremely boring. Yeah. And, so, and the rituals don't have to be incredible. Like my family watches It's a Wonderful Life every year. That's what we do too. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, we know what happens in that movie. Every but everybody time. still delights in watching it. Yeah, you still cry at the end. I, I George, cry like four times. George Bailey's the yeah, yeah, it's a good community there. Yeah, I know. that's a, one of the best movies ever, and it flopped right out of the oh, gate. Yeah, totally, everybody flopped. hated it. Yeah, yeah. It, so it, it, we know about it because it was so cheap to syndicate. Yeah, yeah, that's so crazy. I, I can't imagine how that would flop. I mean, it's a great movie. Great yeah, story. So, so I'd say so. You you're formed by who you're around. So if you say I want to be a I want to be a transfigured human being, not a not a transhuman. I want to be the human being what God wants me to be. I want to grow into full maturity, right? I want to pursue sanctification. So I want to walk with the spirit of God, right? And then I think, what, then what are the disciplines and practices in the right rhythms? Who are you going to be with? What's the rhythm? And what are you going to do that will form you into the person that you want to be? That should start with being part of the family of God. Yep. It should include certain weekly rhythms, right? Which probably should include for a modern American reading the Bible. Yep. Should include some rhythm of prayer, and it should include situations of private and public worship where you you directly pay attention to God himself and adore God and give him what the Bible calls an offering. Whether you think he's speaking back or not, you are offering yourself and your emotion and your devotion to him. And then you go out in the world and you try to obey him as a spiritual discipline. Tell the truth. Engage in the right kinds of conflicts. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing those and trying to obey Jesus and doing that, you grow. You're developing in the spiritual. Obedience is itself. It's kind of a spiritual discipline. And it's something we do in a spiritually disciplined way. But in another sense, we do all the spiritual disciplines in order to do that one. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, is there any other... So much more, but that's a good place to stop. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll wrap it up there. We try to keep it to 20 minutes. I think we're at like 35 minutes. So that's um, good. That's short for us. Yeah, I know it is. So that was actually a success. Um, anyways, if you like this, make sure you like, subscribe, follow, share this with your friends. Go to OptiveNetwork.com for more. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode is helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip. Thank you.